0: Welcome to Halal Money Matters, presented by Saturna Capital. I'm Christopher Patton. And I'm Unim Salam. We have a, an interesting episode because it kind of covers the psychological implications surrounding the decisions people make with their money.
1: Yeah, it's kind of um, odd. Um, you, know, you know, there's not much study that, that's been done on it. But, you know, in economics, you talk about the, the, the rational man. He makes all the right decisions, but in reality, that never happens. And so, uh, you know, behavioral economics, like behavioral finance, um, it's something that's been being studied more. And and today we have a guest who has actually done some research on Islamic behavioral finance. So it'll be even more kind of in-depth, but I think he's he's well-suited for the job.
0: Yes, Dr. Ziad Mohammed. He's a professor at the Global University of Islamic Finance, author, expert on all of these things.
1: Yeah, originally from South Africa. I met him in Malaysia when I was out there and I'm really excited to talk to him. And I think uh, uh, people will enjoy it.
0: All right, let's get into it. Talk to Dr. Mohammed. Oh, I dropped my pencil. Great start. Great start. <laughs> Let me retrieve my writing implement so that I may take notes freely. All right, Dr. Muhammad, thank you for joining us today. And uh, just to get in at the ground level, when we talk about behavioral finance, somebody says the phrase behavioral finance, what just very generally are they talking about?
2: Uh, thank you very much for having me. Yes, behavioral finance, generally made up of those two important words, behavior, and finance, really seek to uh, kind of synergize two concepts, two theories together, one being the theory of consumer psychology and uh, how we think and what drives us, and the other really focused on financial theory, what are the underlying market theories, investment theories uh, that can define or allow us to define the market, the stock market. I could go a little bit more uh, in-depth on this issue and just say that uh, it's it's typically the study of investor behavior. When we put it together, behavioral finance is typically the study of investor behavior and what decisions one makes to optimize one's investments. Some say, interestingly, it's the study of uh, the war between the brain and the heart in investment decisions. It's the rational mind instructing towards uh, Safety and caution, and then the emotional desire that's driving us through our cultural norms, our past histories, our families, peer pressure, and even our emotional construct. That gives us a broader definition and understanding of what behavioral finance actually is.
1: You know, it's funny you would say that uh, when we're talking about uh, this topic, when you mentioned um, this idea of investing in peer pressure. I'm reminded of, of just basically wanting to invest in a stock because other people are investing in it as well, not knowing maybe anything about the uh, the fundamentals of it, or whether it's going to do well or not. It's just, hey, everybody else is doing it. I I might as well do it too. Is that pretty close to, I guess, studying that behavior is,
2: is what it is? Absolutely. And what you're referring to is typically a herd behavior. So this is a significant portion of, of why we study behavioral finance. It's to understand what makes us tick. And here, when we look at peer groups running towards a specific stock or uh, asset, we suddenly believe that there is profit to be made. And this goes throughout history. You know, we, we seem to follow where we believe others have made correct decisions. You know, We have a social trust construct within us. We believe others, and we, we tend to want to believe uh, that what they're saying is true or what their actions are, are true. And, that's, that's
1: and this, so where does this uh, intersect with Islamic finance uh, from, from your perspective or Islamic investing, for that matter?
2: Islamic investing um, has some peculiar characteristics, unique characteristics. So although, first of all, I mean, at the end of the day, we are, all are susceptible to the same biases. And because we're susceptible to those biases, we need to have some sort of barriers or constructs in the manner in which we consider our investment decisions. From an Islamic perspective, there are uh, additional tools that we can use to manage that behavior. Uh, But if you ask whether Islamic finance does things differently from a behavioral perspective, uh, then theoretically it's true, but then practically, because of peer influence, cultural influence, and the environment, the context that we are in, we tend to follow those norms. So you'd see a different uh, behavior in a muslim majority country as opposed to a behavior uh, you know in a secular country where you are seeing investment decisions being made uh, in different forms by different people with different uh, biases and backgrounds
1: so in that, in that particular case then uh, you know let's let's talk about that from you mentioned something about muslim majority versus uh, a minority and, and what what comes to mind is you know that you know i think there's basically the two oldest funds that are available for investing Islamically, for example, one of them was started in Malaysia, right, obviously a Muslim country, but the second one was actually started in the US, mm-hmm. and which is a non-Muslim country. And so do you think that uh, some kind of uh, behavioral finance has to do with why those two countries were were picked for that? Or was that fairly random?
2: Uh, that, that's, that's an important uh, perspective. So first of all, uh, you know, when we talk about Muslim majority countries and investment decisions, we must separate between uh, the markets providing you know supply of investment solutions and then the market seeking investment solutions so there's a demand and supply scenario here so in a muslim majority country so let's take for example uh, you know pakistan or saudi arabia here investment biases and decisions are affected by cultural norms so for example you will you will find uh, anomalies around calendar events like ramadan Investment behavior will be slightly different uh, to out-of-Ramadan behavior. And there are, uh, you know, other religious experiences throughout the year that impact uh, investment decisions. So this is purely from a demand perspective. Now, if you look at the supply side, you have Malaysia and the U.S. Uh, There are many factors that have driven the development of such funds. Beyond, of course, there has to be that demand. There has to be that pull but the push factor is quite prevalent. And that's because firstly, from a Malaysian perspective, you have particular factors. Uh, The market is fairly sophisticated when it comes to regulation. Uh, There is a clear understanding that uh, Islamic finance uh, must be uh, as competitive as conventional. And there should be no barriers in restricting Islamic finance. In fact, there should be incentives in developing Islamic finance. So the mindset and the culture in Malaysia is very much Islamic finance first in many, many institutions. So it's understandable why you would see the birth of uh, investment funds or Islamic investments funds uh, coming out of Malaysia. Naturally, you also have to look at uh, you know, the GDP, so income levels are very important. The level of conservatism and practice of Islam in a country will also be relevant. So Malaysia is easily explained, uh, but the U.S. would require a a little bit more insight. And perhaps from a U.S. perspective, and I'm from South Africa, and we've had this experience in South Africa, uh, and and you can see whether that relates to the U.S. In South Africa, we are 2% of the population. Muslims represent 2% of the entire population. But that 2% has at least 10 Islamic funds, Sharia-compliant funds, It has four to five Islamic financial institutions. It has an Islamic pension fund, and we have lobbied government to ensure we have a Sharia compliant fund. So what gives rise to that is a theory of survival. So you're looking at a very small minority. It's a minority of a minority. And in order to survive, you need to be economically viable and economically strong. In order to do that, you need to ensure that you integrate what you believe with how you intend to make profits. And you cannot have them mutually exclusive. So you have to bring them together. How do you bring them together? Well, that is when you become uh, academic, you become professional, you actually push that Islamic investment technique. in, in, in In the case of the US, you look for that solution, or if you don't have it, you actually construct the solution. So that makes sense from a behavioral perspective. As a minority, uh, you want to survive, you want to be economically strong, and therefore you begin to construct around you uh, structures, solutions that will allow you to thrive.
0: So you mentioned you know, building structures and in your definition of behavioral finance, you phrased it as the consumer psychology and the underlying theories. So when you're looking at the application of Islamic finance, is, it, is that in the psychology, or is it, starting, is it in the underlying
2: theories, or is it in both? Well, d- behavioral psychology is slightly different to uh, financial theory. Financial theory has a strong underpinning of uh, an objective analysis of the empirical data. Uh, behavioral psychology is continuously evolving. I mean, not that financial theory is not but behavioral psychology is continuously evolving as different norms Uh, change. We have a scenario of 2020, you know, now 2021 COVID. So that has changed behavior already. So the impact is a lot more dynamic. So I I just wanted to state that because from a theory and practice perspective, you will find a much closer uh, relationship in behavioral psychology. It's not theory versus practice. Theory is really very much based on practice and theory changes as you go along, simply because practice changes. Whereas finance theory is a little bit more static in that you can go back all the way to the 30s and the 40s and use those very same principles of market theory to explain away what's happening in the stock markets today. So when we're, uh, Doctor, when you're talking about Ramadan and
1: and Muslim countries and behavioral patterns, um, Chris, let me ask you a question. In a month where Muslims are mostly fasting the entire day for, from sunrise to sunset, what do you typically think would happen to food prices?
0: I would assume they would go down because there's a decreased demand. That's right. That's right. <laughs>
1: However, you find in majority Muslim countries that food prices go up. And the reason is because the demand for food actually increases in Muslim countries It's because of the amount. I mean, maybe, doctor, you can explain this a little bit more why that happens. But I, I think that does have something to do with behavior versus the theory of what you Clearly, from a financial perspective, would say demand goes down and so the price should come down. But really, that's the opposite happens.
2: Yes, the opposite happens. The opposite happens. Uh, You know, I I remember our our parents always telling us that, uh, you know, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. And uh, during Ramadan, you're quite hungry. And you, you really, when you asked what you'd like for iftar to break the fast, then you give a long list of everything that you'd like. But when it's time to break the fast, you're actually not able to eat much at all because you fasted the whole day, your stomach has constricted and you've got to take it in phases. So usually what happens is, firstly, uh, you have that behavior. So that behavior where you feel you need more, but at the end of the day, you actually consume uh, less. That's one uh, explanation. But there is another explanation. And that is that uh, because, uh, you know, we are in such a rat race today, uh, where we are consistently working, a lot of energy is required. And therefore, you do find that those that are able to consume actually consume a significant amount in the evenings and between fasting times. And they, you know, they argue that by saying, well, we need that energy for the rest of the day, you know, of the working day. So therefore, the consumption increases. Now, uh, there is another theory. And the other theory is the fact that during Ramadan, The type of food consumed is different to the type of food consumed out of Ramadan. And very often, that food tends to demand certain ingredients that are generally more expensive than others. Uh, Or even if they're not more expensive, they are more expensive in Ramadan. So interestingly, you could buy dates uh, or oil or rice uh, at a very stable price outside Ramadan, but a few weeks before you suddenly start seeing the prices of these items that are commonly consumed in Ramadan go through the roof, double, triple, et cetera. So now there's a lot of increased expenditure in Ramadan, even though the overall objective of Ramadan was to curb desire, was to manage uh, our own behaviors and become more uh, um, attentive. We tend to uh, do the opposite. But there are so many factors at play that drive this type of behavior.
1: That's really good. You know, in the, in, the, in, in the marketing that we do here in the U.S., you know, regarding uh, Islamic investing, the funds, those type of things, it's really a balancing act, right? It's about educating the investor about the potential for gains. But at the same time, being able to tell them what they're currently doing, if they're not doing Islamic, is the long-term loss, which is in the hereafter. And so I'm, I'm just curious, uh, from, from your perspective, if, if there have been studies done on, you know, what's more effective? Is it the fear of the hellfire, or is it the reward of the of this life or the hereafter?
2: You know that type of thing. And that's that's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, there haven't been uh, much studies done on whether uh, the fear is a bigger factor than the enticement of gain. However, I can say that uh, whether that is a correct approach of that investor or not is 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 not what we are debating here. What we're saying is this is his nature. Uh, and, and it reminds me of a student that once uh, completed a master's degree under me and then he worked, worked in a bank as a Sharia advisor. Very excited, he comes to me with a brochure that he actually printed. And he said, I want the bank to pass out this brochure. Please open it up, Prof. And I opened it up and it had the picture of fire, literally fire, right across from end to end. And I said, okay, what's your objective here? He says, if we involved in riba." Naturally, we are heading for Hellfire. I want every single customer to know this. Do you think it get any customers that way? Of course, of course unlikely. Not. He'd yeah. drive everyone away. So is Hellfire and you know, well, you know we, we're very careful on what we're saying here but is Hellfire effective? It may not be the ultimate influence, because the behavior pattern is such that, well, uh, yes, I am aware that there is Hellfire. And ultimately, you know, I I hope for paradise because I live in a status of hope and I don't live in a status of fear. And because of that, uh, I know that my creator is going to cast me over to heaven and paradise. So if you're going to talk about hell, then you're just a doomsday uh, kind of warner and I'm not ready to listen to you.
1: Yeah, you know, when we are talking about shareholders, um, you know, and this is a lot of it is, is our audience, you know, some of them are entrepreneurs and in the healthcare field and other fields. And and I do remember in the conferences that you go to that have the bazaars, you know, there'll be, you know, halal this and halal that. And you're like, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, the one, my shampoo that I was buying was already not halal. It it really also gets down to how do you kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, how do you away, raise awareness that a product is genuinely not halal? But at the same time, you do get those scammers who come into, uh, uh, you know, uh, ethnically driven Uh, markets and are able to scam people because um, they were able to convince them of something that really wasn't there.
2: Very much so. Halal has become a brand. And because it's such a huge, huge sector, halal as a sector is much larger than Islamic finance alone. So you're looking at approximately $7 US trillion in the halal hub, as opposed to uh, less than $3 trillion on the Islamic finance side. So it's much larger and therefore you have halal on everything today. Now, there may be merit in, of course, halal certification on foods and uh, certain types of products, but there is an excessive approach where uh, toothpicks have halal certification and water, spring water has halal certification, and I've seen that with my own eyes. So uh, you have that extreme which makes it uh, sound very skeptical. For those that are just doubting it, uh, you know, at a minute level, they say, well, this is just an extreme. Really, halal should not be, we should not be talking about halal here. It's obviously halal.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, toothpicks and water is wine, but let's look at it even from our current environment that we're living in. I think Indonesia was the first one that certified the COVID vaccine as being halal, uh, you know, by their certification committee. And again, the same question came to my mind was, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, mRNA could be uh, non, you know, haram, for, for example, I mean, that's opposite of halal. So, uh, and I just, I just found that to be very interesting. But a lot of people would not have taken the vaccine unless the agency would have certified it all. So there, there, there's a that trust correct. factor as well.
2: Very much so. Uh, I mean, all of this is really built on just enhancing that social trust. And social trust is a very key element in all of our uh, contracts and our investments. And just placing funds with you means that there is a level of trust that an investor has with you to make the correct decisions. So that trust will now be extended towards saying, well, you're not just making investment decisions on my behalf, but you are ensuring that those decisions are Sharia compliant. So that's an additional uh, element that you are providing, fulfilling that trust. Correct.
0: When we talk about explaining, behave kind of pulling it back to where we started a little bit, explaining financial decisions, splitting market behaviors, is it used more commonly to look backward or do you, have you seen it applied much to trying to predict long-term trends?
2: Yeah, th- th- this is uh, an important question because when you look at financial theory, financial theory really intends to explain what has already occurred. So it, it's really past. Now, it's, it's hoping that it uses that same model to predict what's going to happen in the future. However, it's not been very successful at that. Because if it was, we wouldn't be suffering such market crashes and, and these uh, cycles. Now, does behavioral finance add an element or solve that problem uh, by, by being able to predict uh, you know, future kind of behavior? Well, the answer is no. You know, the future is, is very difficult to predict. It is very difficult to predict. But what you can do is you can say, based on past norms, Uh, there is a likelihood, a probability that we will be going down this particular road. But you can never say for sure. So uh, the quick answer to it is to say that behavioral finance attempts to fill a gap that finance theory itself has not been able to complete. Finance theory has established a very objective scientific approach. But the gaps within that are such that you cannot predict the irrational investor. As much as we want to apply what we refer to as that efficient market hypothesis, we realize that it is only a basis for assessing the market and everything else. It's only only the first level. Thereafter, we need to provide more detailed behavioral finance views and theories on how we can explain the approach to uh, the run of cryptocurrency right now. Or, uh, you know, and, and we can link that to tulip fever perhaps in the 17th century and look at that behavior repeating itself cyclically. So, this tends to complement existing market theory. Can it predict behavior? Well, this is the objective. Has it been successful yet? In certain elements, in certain perspectives, it has been uh, effective. But in the majority of the scenarios, we have continuously affirmed one thing that the market is really very much in a random walk. And that means that we, are at heart, are irrational. We may follow herd. We may follow buy and hold strategies. We may follow our biases. At the end of the day, uh, we might do things uh, quite differently. So the market may be predictable, but the investor is not. So we're talking about uh, different types of
1: bubbles and those type of things. And I, I mean, I've been now in the market long enough to have maybe Two two examples at least the dot com and then uh, uh, the crash of uh, of of 2008 the, the financial crisis and one of the things that I've I've, I've done uh, as a prediction is to is is use what's what's what I call the anti factor now Chris you don't know what the anti factor basically means is that um, <clears throat> you know I'm sitting at a party and one of my mom's friends who in Muslim world everybody's a, a friend of my parents are either auntie or uncle okay so they come up to me and say they they tell me you know son I've started to invest in dot com and that's the only way to make money. And I think you should do that too. So I've seen that in the dot-com area. I've seen that in real estate in 2007. And I'm beginning to see that now in Bitcoin and also in electric vehicles. So I think, you know, those are the kind of the behavior patterns that, that you come to when, you know, somebody like uh, w- Warren Buffett would say, that's when greed has taken over. So you should be fearful, right? And then at the same time on the, on the opposite of that would be, you know, when, when people are like, oh, the last thing I'm ever going to do is invest in the stock market. And that's when the fear of behavior is taken over. And that's when Warren Buffett would tell you that's the best time to be able to get involved in the market. So, you know, a lot of our shareholders are business owners. What would you say to a business owner uh, when it comes to their own businesses, whatever they're trying to sell, and how to be able to apply Islamic behavioral finance uh, from their own business?
2: Islamic behavioral finance is really aligned to how we operate in our own businesses. Very much, very much so. So what, what is it? It's, it's really that uh, ethical integration of applying all our business practices. As you know, and I'm sure the business owners know as well, that uh, the second Khalif, Omar, would prohibit anyone from entering the marketplace unless and until they knew the rules very well. And this was an instruction that was written outside the market. And he also implemented a a supervisor, you know, uh, Zainab, and she actually went through the marketplace to ensure that everyone was following the rules. So, there's a market supervisor, a regulator, so to speak. So, it's very important at the first level that if we want to use Islamic behavioral bias, first of all, we must ensure that we integrate the highest level of ethics within our, our businesses. Now, At the first level, it's easy because we need to remove what are the obvious prohibited elements. Islamic uh, business practice looks at it from this perspective. It says, whatever you're doing is permissible unless you can specifically identify the prohibited. So it's very easy. Whatever you're doing is fine, as long as you stay away from what's not allowed. So that means, and we know the obvious prohibitions, you stay away from the riba, the interest, or un- excessive speculation and uncertainty and any forms of gambling, but anything that you're selling uh, must also be legitimate. And there's a maxim that says, what a Muslim is not allowed to consume or use, he is not allowed to buy or sell. It's a very simple maxim. So if you're not allowed to consume it, if you're not allowed to use it, you can't buy it, nor can you sell it as a business owner. If you use these basic principles... Uh, you will find that you will have already ha- instilled Islamic principles within uh, your uh, your business now there 's a lot more to talk about and i 'm not sure we have uh, adequate time to talk about all the details but ethical practice means that first of all, a very simple rule do not lie and it 's so simple to say "Do not lie and be an honest trader, but really in practice it becomes quite challenging and and very often you walk into a store. And you say, well, I'm not willing to pay this price. And the store owner says, well, uh, you know, this is my cost, or I'm selling it to you below cost, when in fact that's not the truth. So instill ethical practice by ensuring that you're not lying and by not lying saying that, yes, this is my best price. You know, you don't have to to disclose your cost. uh, But if you do, let it be the truth, if you want to disclose your cost. So if you instill these basic behaviors, within the business practice, already you're moving closer to an Islamically acceptable business practice. So um, this, this
1: idea that you just talked about um, is very similar to basically talking about full, full disclosure, right, which is something that uh, in, in, in generally in investing there is there, the companies are forced by the regulator to do fully disclose um, whatever it is that, they, that they're doing so that the investor can make a rational decision?
2: Is that, is that the full disclosure you're talking about there? So uh, it's a slightly different scenario. Remember, a businessman does not have to provide full disclosure. But now, what does that mean? Full disclosure meaning that his business secrets remain his own, where he acquired the products from required, remains his own, but what the ingredients of the products are, how he is selling that, that is, uh, that is what must be transparent. He, again, does not have to disclose his cost at any level, at any stage. So uh, full disclosure that is required from an investment company is slightly different to a business because that will maintain what the business owner is using as his advantage uh, to earn a profit and remain competitive. From an investment perspective, there is a uh, fiduciary responsibility. There is a responsibility of trust. And governance, and therefore disclosure is required, because there is a management of other people's money in a business, you're selling a product, and the product that you sell must be exactly the product that you have disclosed. So this is the slight difference between investment disclosure and business disclosure. yeah, thank you for that.
1: The, one of my my last questions that I have is really talking about um, you know you've you've spent much on a lot of time uh, on in this field. But if there was a novice like myself who wanted to learn a little bit more about Islamic behavioral finance, what resources are out there uh, that you, could, you, you would turn us to, um, to, to, to read up more about it?
2: There isn't much uh, available, unfortunately. However, uh, behavioral finance from the Islamic perspective can be understood by looking at, in fact, the practices of uh, you know the pious predecessors, the scholars, uh, an excellent book, uh, although it uh, may be regarded as a a more traditional book, is really uh, Imam al-Ghazali. His magnum opus, uh, it's called Revival of the Religious Sciences, in that he actually outlines an ethical life, what an ethical behavior should be. And when he actually uh, you know, lists these approaches and how we should live our lives, this practice is now referred to within commercial dealings, businesses, investments and it pervades all life in the manner in which we practice. Naturally, the original sources of the Islamic law all talk about ethical behavior. We know that the Prophet Muhammad, uh, sallallahu alaihi has consistently talked about the importance of good behavior. And he himself has said, I have been sent to uh, correct character or present good character. So uh, this is a crucial aspect. To, to find resources on behavior, is actually to find resources on what Islam expects from a Muslim in his behavior.
0: The only place I want to go that we haven't gone yet is kind of looking at the future of the field. And, you know, we've seen data harvesting. And do we think the field of behavioral finance will benefit from more and more data, data, data all the time?
2: Yes, this, this is the, the world that we're living in, big data. So big data and data analytics really drives the process of behavioral finance today. Uh, it is no more that we take samples to determine how behavior is established. We actually take the entire population. So when we take the entire population, uh, we find that issues like error terms, et cetera, are reduced to completely neg- negligible amounts, and we can make a lot more predictive inputs Uh, into how that behavior has developed over time and will develop in the future. So really, uh, over the next few years, what we are probably going to see is an expansion of sentiment analysis. So sentiment analysis is at the core of behavioral finance, but it has been used in a sample study structure. Going forward, we're talking about sentiment analysis using big data. And now we're talking about a completely new field. And i give you a quick example. Uh, You know, the the driver of cryptocurrency prices that was found, you know, about two years ago was that uh, cryptocurrency is not uh, driven as strongly by gold price or oil price or currency or political situation as much as it can be predicted by sentiment. So a simple sentiment analysis through Google Analytics on all positive statements around particular cryptos would reveal whether they would increase or decrease in price in the coming weeks. And uh, you know, the analysis was so uh, precise that it could say that you know, within 10 days, uh, this crypto's price will increase by 2.x percent because the amount of positive sentiment over the last week has been x. And, it, and, and that positive sentiment is determined through different social media platforms. Because the positive sentiment on, on uh, X media platform is uh, stronger than Y, uh, that will influence the crypto price more. So this is you know where we are looking at behavior and sentiment analysis going forward. And it, we, we expect that that will be driving our understanding of uh, stock market prices, et cetera. But uh, we must understand, that there is one major variable. And although we will be able to understand sentiment analysis a lot better and understand behavior a lot better, one major variable here is the fact that AI, as much as it is giving us answers on one side, it is also making investment decisions on the other. So that AI is predicting the behavior as well. So it influences stock price and ultimately uh, perhaps will create a balance it will fill the gap. So although we feel we may benefit in the short term on uh, be predictive behavior through our sentiment analysis, we find that gap is filled very quickly because an AI decided to move funds already into that a lot quicker than we could have actually predicted. So AI may be stabilizing the market and creating an efficient market going forward. So this is what we think would, uh, well, it's, it's rather a personal opinion. This is what I think would probably happen within the next three uh, to four years at the very least.
1: So very interesting. You're, you're basically saying that the AI would be providing that equilibrium that doesn't exist currently. It's, it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating thought.
0: So we got our next episode topic right there. You there. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I,
2: I just have one one thing course, to state um, with regards to uh, behavior and what could influence behavior. So maybe a, a very quick uh, tool that uh, investors, business owners, shareholders can use uh, to determine You know, whether they should invest or how to invest, or, uh, you know, looking at the overall market as a whole and investment biases. Now, I've been thinking about what would be the most influential tool from the Islamic perspective. And uh, is it, you know, looking for riba or is it looking for a gambling instrument or an impermissible product? Uh, That does not seem to be as strong as the tool I'm going to suggest now. And that tool is. Uh, gharar so we believe that gharar or uncertainty is the most powerful tool in managing investment decision making going forward so if we understand that in, in a minute or two what we are saying is that although it's one single word gharar which is even difficult to pronounce its meaning can be rolled out into uncertainty speculation Ambiguity in transactions, ignorance and information asymmetry, and deception. So when you look at that holistically, what you're saying is, whenever there is excessive speculation, you want to stay away from it. Whenever there is high level, a high level of volatility, you want to stay away from it. You want to exercise caution. Whenever you have inadequate information and have not conducted sufficient fundamental analysis, you want to stay away from it. When you feel that there is a stock that is actually misrepresenting what it's selling and the manner in which it intends to develop or progress over the next few years, stay away from it. So if you use use this principle of gharar uh, as a tool to drive your own behavior in making investment decisions, it should be adequate for the most part of good, positive, positive investment behavior from an Islamic perspective.
0: Please consider an investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain this and other important information about the Amana Funds in a current prospectus or summary prospectus, please visit AmanaFunds.com or call toll-free 1-800-728-8762. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. The Amana Funds are distributed by Saturna Brokerage Services, member FINRA and SIPC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of Saturna Capital, the investment advisor to the Amana Funds. Investing involves risk, including the risk that you could lose money. The Amana funds restrict investments to those companies consistent with Islamic and sustainable principles, which limits opportunities and may affect performance. This material is for general information only and is not a research report or commentary on any investment products offered by Saturna Capital. This material should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security in any jurisdiction where such an offer or solicitation would be illegal. We do not provide tax, accounting, or legal advice to our clients and all investors are advised to consult with their tax accounting or legal advisors regarding any potential investment. Investors should not assume that investments in the securities and or sectors described were or will be profitable. This podcast is prepared based on information Saturna Capital deems reliable. However, Saturna Capital does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information. Investors should consult with a financial advisor prior to making an investment decision. The views and information discussed in this commentary are at a specific point in time, are subject to change, and may not reflect the views of the firm as a whole. All material presented in this publication, unless specifically indicated otherwise, is under copyright to Saturna. No part of this publication may be altered in any way copied or distributed without the prior express written permission of Saturna Capital.